0: It makes me glad you're gonna have all the things all the things that I never
1: had No, coming. no, coming now! Oh, where am I? You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler.
0: 87% match for uh, your skills.
1: Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then?
0: Host of the island podcast.
1: Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect for me. Brown baby, brown baby. Insight. The act of apprehending the inner nature of things. I gain so much insight from personal stories. So as I try to understand and navigate through my own privilege... I reached out to three colleagues in the arts, Regina Marie Williams, Isabel Monk O'Connor, and Kelly Lynn Foster-Warder. Three conversations with three strong black women, all with very insightful stories to share.
0: Wow, school boy they try to say it's a communist plot. All I want is equality for my brothers, my sisters, my people, and me.
1: Regina Marie Williams, heard here performing on stage as Nina Simone, is one of our original inhabitants on the island. She's also an actor and singer who's been killing it on stage here in the Twin Cities and across the country for decades. And Regina is a gifted photographer who can capture the translucent wings of an egret or the iridescent eyes of a dragonfly perched on a leaf. Since the murder of George Floyd, Regina has taken her camera and visited his memorial site almost daily, capturing incredible images of the grief, the tributes, and the hope.
0: Some of the signs really struck me, especially when a parent is holding a Black Lives Matter sign next to a child, a baby boy child.
1: Oh.
0: And it just, I don't know, why it hits me. Well, I know why it hits me, but at the moment it hits me and I feel it before I realize what I'm thinking about. Yeah. That that child matters. He's cute now, but what happens to that little black boy when he becomes an adult? And so it's so important that these signs exist and that we not just take photos of them, but take notice of them. Yes. And and take them in and recognize what they mean uh, and hopefully change will come that's what we hope but what it does is it strikes me it makes me emotional I am quite raw from it but it's also really exciting too
1: and behind every image there's a story so the photo of the family of four oh
0: yeah oh that was the day that uh Terry Floyd, who is George Floyd's brother, was coming to.
1: Right. Okay. Okay.
0: And there were lots of protesters out there, ralliers and marchers. They were all there in solidarity. And it was the two parents, the black father and the white mother and the two biracial kids. And they're standing together and they all give you the, the fist and the power and the peace sign. And... The little kid, the older one, is standing right next to his dad, and his t shirt says, I will save the world. And it's a Spider Man t shirt. Yeah. And when I, I don't think I even saw the t shirt until I got home. Wow. Uh, until I saw the photos. And I was standing next to a reporter, and the reporter took the same photo, um, slightly different. She, um, a photojournalist. And she took a fantastic picture and she was standing maybe a foot away from me. But when they published the picture, the kid's t-shirt isn't in there. And to me, the t-shirt completes the message that I feel that was saying. That these parents brought their child here to say, listen, this is the work that we're doing, but we're not done yet. And, And so the kids to get practice doing this because it ain't over Sue. Right. And you know, that's been part of the discussion is that this, my dears, is once again, the beginning of this portion. Uh, Lots of things have changed because of it, but this is the beginning of this portion. So it's, it's been terrific to see the kids out there uh, wearing their t-shirts and wondering what's going on or showing their sorrow and There was a photo I took the other day of a drawing of George Floyd. And it said, Oliver, age nine, drew the picture. And some of the kid art, they don't know. They don't completely understand about the race thing. They don't understand why somebody has to die like that.
2: That's what they don't
0: understand. And they're feeling sorry because they understand when you call for your mama. So we, there's all this kid art out there that is really um, also strikes me. So it's powerful and it's moving and it's also very sad.
1: Yeah, no, it's very sad.
0: These photos to me are, are documenting this time. Yeah, I, I took a picture and a bus passes by and it says essential trips only. So my thing is take a picture with it, take a picture without it. And I get home and we go. We got to leave the bus in there because yeah. that makes the statement about where we are in the world right now. Yes, one of my one of the lessons that I have learned about taking pictures is that you have to close ups are really great. But how about showing uh, the environment where yeah. you actually are? You've yeah. got to place the picture Yeah. and showing the bus with the essential trips only. Uh, showing the crowd showing the masks that say, I can't breathe and, and, and other messages and showing people holding their hands up and they're wearing purple plastic gloves and it's 83 degrees yeah. outside. Uh, they tell a story about where we are right now.
1: I told her about one of my favorite images and she shared one of hers. The mother and the kid, which I love, the mother helping her young son write something in chalk on the street. I love that one.
0: I'm Um, glad I took that picture because I almost didn't.
1: No, I love that one. I love that one. It's just like, here, let me help you express yourself, this little three-year-old or four-year-old in chalk on the street at the memorial site.
0: (laughs) My favorite sign says, this is our collective PTSD. Because that's what it is. Those signs are our grief. Yeah. They are our anger. Mm-hmm. They are our sorrow.
1: Yeah.
0: They they are also a way to show solidarity, Sue. And you see a lot of solidarity. People just standing together. Yeah. And you, you know we talk about holding space, but that is what that space is for. Is for our collective PTSD. Everyone is not happy that that George Floyd memorial is there. Yeah, true. Everyone does not feel that we should be grieving. People are angry about this time. So, and that's okay too, yeah. but uh, their purpose is not for destruction. Their purpose is to enlighten us and remind us of where we are and who we are. Yeah. And, and you see much more beauty in the pictures than you see anything else. And you see love and you see forgiveness. You see, I want to do better. You see, I'm hearing you. You see, I am not taking this anymore. Uh, but, but I don't see destruction. Um, I mean, I see some angry things and I take those pictures too.
1: Yeah, like the guy throwing the bricks. Yeah. That was a scary day for you. Um, that was a
0: really scary day for me. I'm glad I got the picture but it kept upsetting me. I mean, I wondered if I had PTSD. So I had to take those pictures down. Yeah. I didn't want to look at them. Yeah. I have a hard time looking at them when they come across. But you know, what I am learning, Sue, right now is we are being forced to sit in this discomfort yeah. so that it's okay. Don't run, Regina. Just it is okay how do you feel I'm angry um, how does this make you feel this comforts me this so I'm sitting in that discomfort
1: yeah we all have to get through this place I do too yeah. to sort of say what have I been doing that that is adding to systemic racism what am I doing that is complicit that I
0: don't not even aware of what am I doing what is Regina doing you know what I mean yeah That's what I ask myself and I um, even how we support our own businesses. How, you know, how much have I bought into the system that I was raised in? Mm -hmm. And I, too, want to do better. But these signs that these people are painting are signs of the time. And when you see a stop sign, what do you do? You stop. When you see a yield sign, what do you do? You yield. When you see a sign that says only turn right here, you know that there's going to be danger up ahead. They're speaking to us, people. The signs are speaking to us. And I love that some of the young people, primarily young people, are writing them.
1: She took a photo of a poem, typed up and pinned to a wall at the memorial site. In the poem, Adrenaline Rush, by spoken word artist Rudy Francisco, Rudy shares an experience he had at 18 when he was stopped by the police. The poem ends with,
0: What does he say? I'm going to make it home. I'm going to make it home today. And I thought about my own son and, yeah, you know, driving while black. Right. It, it's real.
1: Do you feel that this is a more volatile time for him?
0: I do. We, um, we drove to, north dakota we had to go there to to bury his father recently okay. all right and it was just he and i in the car and jack is a six foot six black young man beautiful big man and i was nervous and i tried not to be and i hmm. asked him i didn't want him to get out when we got at the gas station i thought no i'll pump the gas
1: oh but wow he
0: goes. he said no, mom, I feel, um, he felt safe. He said, I don't feel fearful. And I thought, that's good. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's because of his relationship with God, I think. But for me, having a son out there with, there's a certain area out there, Sue, where you know that you have left the city between here and Fargo. Oh, And uh, there are a lot of signs that just, I mean, literal uh, billboards that tell you where they stand. And where they stand might be okay, but it also represents some things for me that says that you don't value my life. You don't value my son's life.
1: Does capturing these images for
0: you, is it healing at all? Oh, it absolutely is. And it makes me feel um, powerful. Yeah. That sounds weird, but because, okay. Yeah. Because we feel so powerless right now. Yeah. Most of the time, you know, we, the things too, that I get my strength from, I was telling Tom this the other day that. It took me a while. I just got up and I had to write it down. I am a mentor in the theater. There is no theater. Right. And when that thing is taken away, that gives you meaning. That makes you feel like you can do something about a situation. Mm -hmm. That's taken away. I'm an actor in the theater. I get a lot of, joy and strength from that when we do things and we succeed at things that we know we can do and people applaud us for it it makes us feel good that we were successful at something that we communicated something I don't have that right Um, there is no theater so there's no opportunity for me to do that and when I take these pictures um And I have one success. I mean, I bring home a lot of pictures for my husband, edit. (laughs) (laughs) And and when I take a picture and I see the message so clearly, I feel a success. I don't even necessarily have to share it right away. I just feel like I captured a moment. And that makes me feel all sorts of things but it gives me a moment to say, okay, I'm doing something that matters.
1: Rigida's images referenced during this conversation can be viewed on our website. Isabel Monk O'Connor is a Yale School of Drama trained actor who has worked on Broadway and with celebrated regional theaters like the Guthrie and Oregon Shakespeare Festival. She grew up in the 50s and 60s, just across the Mason-Dixon line in rural Maryland, segregated school buses, one each for black and white kids, a segregated bus to catechism, with a black side and a white side. White kids got off first. She remembers the first time she saw a white person up close.
2: I went to Mr. High's. It was called High's, and it was a dairy, because we didn't have cows, but we had pigs, so we had meat and bacon and all that stuff. And there were chickens, so we had eggs. But in order to get milk and butter, we had to go to High's. And I went with my mom, and I was maybe five or six, and I was looking all around, and I was looking at Mr. High because I don't believe I'd ever seen a white person that close. Wow. And I was mesmerized. Yeah. <laughs> and Mr. High asked me what I was looking at, and I better put my eyeballs on the floor. And my mother, I, I think my mother got a little nervous. Yeah. But I did what he said. And well, first of all, I was looking at a being that looked nothing like, well, he looked like the people on TV, but I was actually seeing him up close. Yeah. And that was amazing. To know that the people on TV actually lived in the world. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those were real people. I mean, we could, you know, I, we drove around, you could see people, but wow, that was amazing. Up close. Okay. The first
1: white person that you're seeing up close and then the instant putting you in your place. Oh, Definitely,
2: not just in my place. And oftentimes, I want uh, now, as I, you know, looking back, I wonder now looking out, I think, I I wonder where my place was. My place was definitely uh, below him, my place was definitely under his foot. And oftentimes, my place might have been six feet under the earth. For a living, my dad picked cotton, um, and he had been picking cotton since he was six. Oh, really? So he never got a chance to go to school. So the two older boys they picked cotton and paid for the younger ones to go to school. So my dad never got learned to read or write, um, and I think he was he was bitter about it. Yeah, uh, because he was a very proud person and. He faked it. Mm. He, he would, you know, pick up a newspaper and look at whatever he was looking at. And uh, he would pretend that he could read. And, wow. And then he actually tried to go to school to learn to read when he was about 60 something, but he didn't have the patience. He could pick out a few words. He actually learned how to write his name. And that yeah. was a big deal. Uh, instead of just signing everything with an X. I remember one afternoon after we'd integrated schools, I went to a segregated school until I was in the 10th grade.
1: And remind me where this was, Izzy. This
2: was in Charles County, Maryland, about 30 miles South on the Potomac river from Washington, D.C. Yeah. I could see Mount Vernon across the river from us. Wow. And, uh, I think I might have been in the 12th grade when this happened. And I was visiting my father, who lived not far from my mother. They divorced. My father built a house six miles away from where he built the house for my mother. He built a house for his new wife. Oh, uh oh. Um, But anyway, yes, it was not fun. But anyway, I was there visiting my dad, spending a few days. And uh, I had a friend of mine. come over. He was the only Jewish kid in our class and we had to do some project together. So we were at the tables doing whatever we were doing and my dad came home from work and my dad's eyes got as big as saucers. He walked out of the house and stayed out of the house until Steve Sorota left the house. When he came back in, he said, don't you ever have a white person in my house again. Wow. Because he had been abused greatly. Mm. Yeah. At, from, you know, uh, and I found that extraordinary, but I, uh, I abided by his law for his house. So.
1: And that had mm-hmm. never come up before as far as like. No, no, yeah. no, no.
2: And because my father's new wife actually looked white, but she was black. Oh, I mean, she, she was very fair.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, extremely fair. She wasn't caramel colored. She wasn't, uh, you know, teas and tan. She, she, she <laughs> was what they call high, high yellow, and uh, she was what um, we called in our community a wee sort. A wee sort a we sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a we sort was someone who only married people who looked like them. So they only married we sort. Oh. Yeah. And so they had a lot of um intermarrying and a lot of uh very light-skinned children with straight hair and some different colored eyes
1: underscoring that the lighter skin is more attractive or
2: better or no no you could stop at better you don't, you don't have to say more attractive yeah. you just say better better oh, this reminds me of a a little house on the prairie episode where um the kid from uh, what you talking about Willis uh the big boy was yeah. on there and he was playing a little slave kid or whatever and he had this conversation with Michael Landon or pa yeah uh, and he asks Pa.
0: You answer me something, sir. Uh, if I can. Would you like to live to be a hundred? Sure, I would.
1: It's not very likely. but I guess all of us like to live to a ripe old age.
0: Would you rather be black and live to be a hundred or white and live to be 50?
2: And Michael Landing had no answer. I was told years ago that I I suffered from PTSD um because I grew up with these two kids my mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they um
1: you said they were they were teenagers when you were born.
2: Yeah, they yeah, were literally. teenagers. That's what I mean. They they were the kids that kind of big giant air quotes raised me. So there's a PTSD
1: for you personally with, with how you were brought up, and then there's also a collective PTSD that
2: we're all going through, and yeah. that and there was a collective like from the ancestors, yeah. coming my way, because my great-great-grandmother was a slave. My great-grandmother knew her mother had been a slave, so my great-grandmother, Mary, who yeah. I knew yeah, was the first free one of us.
1: In college, she ended up in theater by way of a need to pick up some easy credits. Hey, take an acting class. Turns out theater was more to her than just a 40-year career.
2: I used my theater background or theater life for those 40 years to be someone else, to kind of run away from life or my life.
1: Was that clear at the time? the theater was an escape for you or was that something that you realized later?
2: I think I realized later that theater was my childhood. (laughs) Uh, Because uh, uh. you have to be open and, and I wasn't really open. I mean, oh my God, that first theater class I took where you had to touch everybody. Oh my God, (laughs) please. I still have never gotten used to all that handsy stuff. So I hate to say it, but this COVID thing. I know. Kind of a blessing for us um, people who don't like to be touched.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything about what's happening in the last few months, whether it's the pandemic or since George Floyd's murder, is there anything that is speaking to you there doesn't have to be, but I'm just curious if there's anything that's personally coming up for you.
2: I have been so depressed that mostly all I could do is sit in this chair that I'm sitting in and look out the window.
1: So do you feel like the depression is, is it a combination? Was it first triggered by the pandemic or is it just been since Memorial Day?
2: no, it was triggered by the pandemic and yeah. there was nobody in charge. Yes. And then George. Had-
1: yeah. So then it, on top of that.
2: Oh, there. my. I, I just remember actually watching it. Pat and I, my husband and I, we were like, oh, my God. Yeah. He killed him. Yeah. It's a snuff movie on TV. Yeah. Oh, and then I just said, where are we as a race of humans? Yeah. Where have we come to? Does it feel uh, hopeless? Well, you know, I have these waves of hope, uh, like I'm sure most people do. And then these waves of like despair almost.
1: Isabel finds comfort in a daily meditation from Unity. She shared a favorite piece.
2: Every morning I get up and I do this little thing, you know, I read from that Unity book, and yeah. I ask that um, my ears be open so that I can hear, yeah. and that my mouth be closed so that I can listen. Listen, in the stillness, I listen. When the world is rife with clamorous noise and chatter, I may become distracted from purposeful activity. My energies may be dissipated as I listen to gossip, dissect the news of the day, worry about the stock market, or fret over trivial matter. In my inner sanctuary, I find comfort and solace, taking time to go to a quiet space Breathing slowly and deeply, stilling all thought and releasing all worry, concern, or attachment, I create a sacred space to listen. In the silence, I surrender my worries and wants to the grace and peace I need, which I find within. As I listen, I build my trust in the divine. My faith is renewed as I absorb all that I've received in silent contemplation. I return to my activities refreshed and refocused.
1: So a 13-year-old boy is riding his bike on a path through the park just down the street from his house. His state is under a stay-at-home order at this point, and the rules say that you can't play on any of the park equipment, though he sees lots of kids ignoring that rule. But riding your bike through the park is totally fine. So as the young teenager is riding, he notices two women standing in the park watching him, and this makes him a little nervous. They're both white. He's black. He's following the rules, so he's okay. Until a police car pulls up next to him. He panics, trying to remember what he should and shouldn't do around the police. The officers ask him what he's doing in the park and what his name and address is. The kid sees the two women standing nearby, staring intently. Quickly, the officers determine all is well and tell the young guy that he can keep riding his bike in the park, no problem. But, terrified and confused, he rides home. Later, after calling the police for more details, his mother finds out that the two women had called 911, claiming that they felt afraid for their lives. A black man was riding a bike in the park, and they felt threatened. They were adamant that the police be sent. Now, the 13-year-old hadn't engaged with the women or come anywhere near them. Just being a young black kid riding a bike through his own neighborhood park was a threat. But today, he gets to go home. Today.
0: I don't know you And you don't look at all like me You're too scary Though you're just a kid in your teens. Hey there,
1: welcome to the pool. Are you members? Because this is a members-only pool, unfortunately. Oh, you are new members. That is terrific. <laughs> we could show you some diversity around here, right? I mean, look at this crowd. So, when did you guys join? Oh, no, 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 it's not a big deal. I just happen to know all the members here, and I haven't met you yet. <laughs> so, you join when? Oh, okay, great. You don't happen to have your membership card with you, do you? Uh, No, 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 not a requirement, not at all. Just curious, because I can't believe I haven't met you yet. Anyway, welcome to the pool, okay? And I look forward to seeing you here more often, right? Great. Oh, and you know, if anyone gives you a hard time, you just send them to me. They know not to cross me. No, 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 not in charge, Just, just me. Oh, and if the sun gets too much for you, there's umbrellas over there that you can use. and and you should know there is no lifeguard on duty so if you're not the greatest swimmer you know you'll want to be careful oh and there's towels over there you know what i'll go get you some oh i'm karen by the way and you are
0: yes you know me entitled privilege with too much to say please stop filming i'm in no mood to go viral today so don't tell me what could be I'm hanging on to the status quo I'm white and free and always will be Living my life the way I know In
1: 1955, Carolyn Bryant accused 14-year-old Emmett Till of assaulting her in her grocery store in Money, Mississippi. She said he had grabbed her on the waist and said lewd things to her. Her husband and his half-brother wanted revenge. So three days later, they kidnapped the 14-year-old from his uncle's home in the middle of the night, tortured and killed him, and dumped his body into the river. The husband and half-brother were acquitted by an all-white, all-male jury, and the image of Emmett Till's tortured body in his open casket was seen around the world, effectively launching the civil rights movement. Fifty-three years later, in 2008, Carolyn Bryant, now Carolyn Bryant Dunham, recanted her story to a historian who was writing a book called The Blood of Emmett Till. The assault never happened, she told the author. What young Emmett had actually done that day in 1955 was whistle at her outside of her store. Emmett was from Chicago and was visiting cousins in Mississippi that summer. The cousins were very well-versed in the protocol of the Jim Crow South. Emmett was not. In 2018, 10 years after Carolyn's recanting, the historian, Timothy Tyson, finally published his book, Revealing Her Stunning Truth. When he was asked why he hadn't shared Carolyn Bryant's recantation 10 years earlier, his response was, I didn't think it was important. This book is about Emmett Till, not Carolyn Bryant. But without Carolyn Bryant's false accusation against Emmett Till, Emmett, would have lived on. That is, until the next white woman. 911, what is your emergency, please? Yes, there is a black man riding his bike around the park, and I feel very threatened. Is he threatening you uh, right now, ma'am? No, 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 but he might. You say he's an African-American male? Yes. Can you give me an idea of his age? Oh, I don't know. 12 or 13? 12 or 13, 12 or, 13 years or maybe a a big 11? All right, ma'am, you right now? No, no, he's on the other side of the park right now. He's, he's riding away. He's riding away from you? Yeah, yes, I can barely see him right now, but, but he's black. Ma'am, I can't send the police just because he's black. Yes, you can. No. You, you do it all the time. No, ma'am. You I- know what? I need to speak to your supervisor. I'm not getting good service here. Ma'am. No, no, no. Please connect me with your supervisor right now. Ma'am. Hello? Hey. Hello? so sure you know me.
0: I've been doing this for too many years. Can you blame me? It's the only way I face my fears. So I'll tell you what to do. And I'll tell you what to say. And if you don't follow the rules, I'll call the police. want one one your emergency?
1: Um, yes, I, um, um, never mind. Are you alright, ma'am? No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just, uh, I'm stopping. You're stopping what? Ma'am? I, I have to stop. I, I just, I just, I just have to stop. What, what do you have to stop? Ma'am? This. I
2: have
1: to stop
0: this. Ma'am? I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: Lynn Foster-Warder is a popular choreographer and educator who's been an arts administrator and diversity coordinator. Kelly is also an activist and an advocate who's creating a safe space for dialogue about race. She believes sharing personal stories will open up our collective understanding, like this past February, when she posted a story a day for Black History Month.
3: I was uh, working on a show with an amazing uh, group of people, and we were talking about um, being artists and artists of color and, and, and just life in general. And somehow a story came up of growing up in, and being a black girl in a white world. And it was just a little story. And my friends were just shocked by it, especially my um, white colleagues were just shocked by it. And I was like, oh, you think that's shocking? I got a story for every day of Black History Month as a joke. Yeah. They said, oh, you should do that. Like, seriously, you should think about doing that because that story, I'm going to be thinking about that story for a week. And to me, that's just something that has happened to me.
1: A new house triggered this story.
3: In August, we moved to this new house and our house had a mailbox out in front of the house, like by the driveway. And I was super like moved about this mailbox because when I was growing up in Rosemount, we moved to a house. And everybody had their mailboxes on the street and we didn't, ours was at the, our mail was at the post office. And I just sort of grew up knowing that we went to the post office and I asked my mom about it recently. And the reason that we had our mail at the post office and not on the street, like everyone else is because our mailbox kept getting knocked down, (sighs) just ours. And the time when our mailbox was there, the mail person wouldn't deliver it to our house. So the post office folks let us go to the post office. And so that was my dad's daily ritual. He actually became great friends with the ladies at the post office. And we had our PO box 185. That was my address always. And I drove by that house actually yesterday. I don't know why. And the trees are so big and I'm so amazed. And they have a mailbox too.
1: Wow.
3: They have a mailbox. And so that's how I know that we were the first and that folks weren't sure about us. I grew up here in Minnesota. I grew up south of the river, as we say. And my dad was maybe one of the first black men in Rosemount. That was my experience. And so I've spent a lot of my life as a black person and a biracial person in a white world. I had two parents that uh, were faulted, like all parents, but amazing. And we always talked about who we were and race. And my sweet white mom from Hastings, Minnesota, did an amazing job of helping my sister and I to somehow have great confidence and fully understand that the world does not revolve around us. I don't actually know how she did it. I'm trying to figure it out with my children. But what we learned is that we were unique and that some people would celebrate that and more people would be threatened by it and some people would be angered by it. Growing up, my dad wasn't allowed in my grandma's house at first, my mom's mom. Really? Grandpa would go outside and talk to him in the driveway. And I thought that dads talked in the driveway. I thought that was the, that was a cultural thing. And don't all the dads talk in the driveway while the moms and the kids go in the house. Uh, eventually my grandma did let my dad in the house, and because my mom said, I'm not coming unless we can all come. And my grandma loved my dad. They had they ended up having a lovely little relationship, um, for lack of a better word. And so I, I grew up, the reason I say that I'm black and I grew up black is because in the seventies and eighties, I didn't know a lot of biracial people and you really were one or the other for the most part. What I found though, is that I was one or the other as it convenienced people in their worldview, right? So when it was convenient for me to be black, I was black. And when being black was frustrating, then I was, I was, well, you're 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 just as white as you are black. Like it was an interesting thing to fight. And there were times when I'd wanna go places with my mom so people would know I was white. And there were a lot more times when I wanted to go places with my dad so people knew that I really was black. So, so as a biracial person, there was a little back and forth as you figure out where you land. But for the most part, the world treated me as a black person. And I felt like a black person. But I, I wanna say that I know that there's colorism and that there are nuances and that my experience as a Black person is different than someone that has darker skin or is a man or lived in a different neighborhood. So I want to be conscious that I know that my light skin afforded me things that weren't afforded to some of my darker skin friends and relatives. At the same time, though, I very much think of myself as Black. Now there are all these beautiful biracial people everywhere. And I, I have so many friends, but that was not my growing up experience. I actually have always felt lucky. My dad used to say, I'm so glad I'm black. It'd be so boring to be white. <laughs> Not in a critical way, no, but no, no. I, yes, absolutely. You know, way, to try to find the joy in the situation, right. And find the opportunity. And I've always felt that being both has made me more empathetic and has given me a chance to have a broader perspective and view. What I love about this moment is that we're not asking for scraps. We need a reset. Not just black people and brown people need it and, and native folks and and other marginalized people. Our country needs it for us all to move forward. We are stuck in a place that we are pitting our very needs against each other when in fact what we need is to realize that we're as cheesy as it sounds more the same than we are different.
1: And then there's the history lesson in grade school.
3: There were a few other kids that were from immigrant families from Laos in my elementary school. Few, very few. But otherwise, you know, it was me and my sister were the black kids. But I do remember the history book. There's a lesson, and the lesson would be on slavery every year, and it would basically be like slaves, you know, picked cotton, and you know, just the kind of the basics. But always there was some sort of conversation about how if the slaves tried to leave their hands or their foot would get cut off and everyone would turn and look at me because they're kids and they're like, Oh, Kelly's black and they're talking about black things. And then I would cry. and she, I would,
1: She must know. Yeah. yeah or ahead.
3: poor Kelly. I always felt like they were looking at me like, that must be so hard. Like I was a slave, you know, intentions, there's intentions and there's impact, right? Their intentions were probably sympathy and understanding. There was some that weren't, but But the impact, of course, was that I felt othered, and I felt isolated, and I felt judged and questioned. And so I would usually cry, and I would usually leave. And then the teacher would come out, and I I would just suck it up, and it would be fine. Because that's what you do. When the kid says the N word on the playground, same thing. You just suck it up, and you move on. Because what are you going to do? Have no friends. Like, you're a little kid. You're just trying to survive. And so that's what I would do. But in fourth grade, I don't know what got into me, but I just was so like, I actually liked history, and I liked social studies, um, but I remember that I, I raised my hand, like a good, respectful little student, and I stood up, and I stood on my chair, and I said, I have two hands, and I have two feet. I'm not a slave. Everyone turned around, and the teacher was like, are you okay? And I said, I'm okay now. Yes, I'm okay now, and I stayed in the class, and, and I think she just awkwardly finished the lesson, and then we were moving back, switching rooms or something, and a couple of kids were, was I staring at you? Was I staring <laughs> Everyone was staring at me. Like
0: yes, everyone. You were all it's staring fine. at me.
3: But I think what's most interesting about that story, besides that for me, I found out that I could impact how people were treating me.
1: Yeah.
3: Interesting thing is that in fifth grade, when it was time for that unit, the teacher actually called me in the hall and talked to me and asked if I could handle being in the room. And even in fifth grade at, you know, 11 years old, I knew that that was not okay. And of course I cried because I felt like I had done something wrong. Like I was in trouble when in fact, the question shouldn't have been, could I handle it? The question should have been, how am I as the teacher going to make sure that my other students can handle this conversation? And even better, we should be planning with people and not for people. Can I take my one brown student, my one black kid, and say, hey, you spoke out last year and that was really brave. Are you interested in talking about how we can do better this year? But instead, I was othered again. I might as well have just never
1: stood on my desk. You mentioned it was sort of um, like a loss of innocence for you at that moment. Well, because in fourth grade,
3: I felt like it can make a difference. And then in fifth grade, I learned that there are consequences to speaking up and that even when you do the right thing, and even when what you say is true, you will not always be respected for it, included for it, and in fact, you might be punished for it. You have to be careful how, and be ready for the consequences of speaking out and speaking your truth. Yeah. What's interesting is that while I learned, there was maybe a loss of innocence in fifth grade, I also figured out who I was going to be. I mean, I can vividly remember sitting and crying and then the next class coming. So they all saw me crying. Like I can remember it so well. And I also remember that I decided that it was worth it anyway, at some point. Yep. Because in high school, I was the one like, you can't say that. You can't talk, you know, I mean, for better or worse, I found my voice through those experiences and I haven't always used it. If I, you know, if I'm honest, I haven't always used it. There have been times when you're, you have to be careful. But what I know now is that I feel the best and I help the most when I am as honest and open and as authentic as I can be. And being a black biracial woman in a world where I am often the only, Mm -hmm. that is useful for me and for our industry and and for the people in the room with me, whether they know it or not. I have three children that I'm responsible for and countless others that I call my children, but I have three in my house. I have one daughter who's 14 who presents as white. My husband is white and that comes with its own challenges for her. I have a son who looks more like me, and then I have an adoptive son who's darker than I am. And my dream would be that they see us make this transition in their lifetime, and that my three-year-old looks back and goes, remember when the police and and Black people, when there was all of that fear, and now we have found a way forward that's actually representative of the ideals that we all say that we espouse to. Like, Wouldn't that be great if this is part of the history books that actually shows change?
1: Kelly's middle child, Will, has cerebral palsy and hearing loss, which adds to his challenges as a biracial kid.
3: So Will is 13 and awesome, and he uh, has brown skin and and brown hair and you know, light brown skin and curly brown hair. He looks probably, if if somebody was judging, he looks um, more Hispanic. He and his friends, we joke that they're very ethnically ambiguous, right? So, but they're not white, right? which is the key for better or for worse. But he does have hearing loss and he does better when he can see your face and, and kind of read lips and match that. And depending on the noise that's around, right? When there's a lot of noise, it's really hard for him to hear. And he has cerebral palsy and he's ambulatory. He walks, he runs, he does, um, he runs track and field in the junior disability nationals. So, you know, he's great, but it has happened over the years um, with friends or at school where kids are like, why are you always touching me? And, And he just, he needs to catch his balance. That's the kind of CP he has. So you might not understand. You just think, oh, he's a little bit goofy when in fact it's because of his condition.
1: Yeah. You mentioned in one of their posts your fear that at some point this could be misunderstood by authorities. I don't know
3: how Will would do in that, if he would understand, if he would you know lose his balance and bump into them, and then what would happen because it could be seen as resisting or being disrespectful. Um, but I do, I, I have real concerns that his encounters with authority will be misunderstood and that it will result in Something terrible happening to him, and I know that every mother doesn't have to think about that in the same way, right? Because to know Will is to love him, and when people hear about that fear about Will, it hopefully helps them understand. Yeah,
1: you also talk about David, your youngest, who is as you call is is beautifully black. Yes, he is. And when he gets older, is he headed for a life of being seen as a threat? Um, I mean, he's
3: shockingly cute, right? He's, right. Just, he's just the sweetest, cutest thing. And people see him to the point where people come up to me to talk to, to like, try to, because he's that cute. But I do, I, there's part of me that's just like, you think he's so cute right now? And it's usually white people that I'll want to talk to him about and say how cute he is. But there's also, as we moved in this new neighborhood, and before we moved here, we drove around a lot, and my kids would laugh at me because I'd be like, are there any black people in the neighborhood? <laughs> And there's one and we're like okay we found like seven but we don't know where they live we know that they're around and so we I felt safer moving to a neighborhood where at least I knew that on a regular basis we would see people now that we live here none of them live on our street but lovely people do live on our street but I have found myself on walks being like David wave because I want to make sure that everyone in this neighborhood knows that he is here that he belongs here We're waving, we're smiling, so that if they see him, they don't call the police, they call his mom. Currently our kids go to a super diverse school and that will always be the case because it's important that they aren't the only and it's important that they are influenced by people of all races and backgrounds and countries. That is important, that's how we get out of this actually.
1: Kelly has a store memory, too, as a kid. This time, it's her dad who was a first.
3: We were in the store. It was Tom Thumb. Remember Tom Thumbs? Sure. I was probably six or seven. Uh, my dad was in the store, and clearly, like, people were uncomfortable that he was in the store. And this little, obviously, white boy looked up at my dad and pointed at him and said, Look, Mom, a robber. <sighs> and My dad, you know, he said, well, I mean, that's probably what he'd seen on TV. He'd never seen a black person before. And, or maybe that's a conversation in their house. You know, who are we to say? I mean, this is 1980 or 78 or 79, something like that. And when the mom was, you know, grabbed the little boy close to her and like hush little Bobby, whatever it was, but the little boy kept looking at my dad. And so my sweet dad, uh, when the little boy looked, my dad said, boo, (laughs) (laughs) Which is terrible. And then, and then he smiled and then he smiled and they went along their way. But that's, that's our story from when I was very little, knowing that when we go places, we should be aware that people are aware of us. It's impressed upon me that I want to make sure that the work I'm doing right now is motivated and is impactful in the moment we're in. So I truly believe that what happened with George Floyd in this pandemic, the tragedy of what happened to George Floyd and what happens to people uh, with Brown and black bodies all over this country and, and other people, right? Like we are in a crisis of understanding race in this country in a way that we haven't been in a while. And we're also in this pandemic. And the fact that we've all been sitting here having to face a new life is why this movement is happening. I truly believe it. Yeah, We had to slow down, and we had to see it, and we couldn't look away. So I want to make sure that what I'm doing and where my energy is, is making sure that those things meet. I believe in theater and the power and the storytelling of it, and I want to be a part of helping us come out of this better for everyone, for our society.
1: Kelly's dad, Billy Foster, passed away in 2015. In the 1950s, he was in a doo-wop group called the Boardwalkers. They recorded a single in 1957.
3: My dad and his life, which was sort of extraordinary and also absolutely simple at the same time, is is a big motivator for me in figuring out where where does my voice go? My dad did not have the opportunities based upon the color of his skin and the um, lack of resources um, to do all of the things as an artist that maybe he had dreamed of doing. He did get to do a lot of amazing things, but it motivates me to make sure that I'm not wasting the opportunities that are put in front of me. When I think about what my dad did with so little, you know, getting a made, being on the radio, writing his stories. He was not a perfect man, but he was a perfect dad to me. And he was truly, truly a Renaissance man and his legacy powers me. His legacy my life powers me, and he believed in me the way a dad is supposed to believe in his little girl.
1: Thank you to our amazing guests, Regina Marie Williams, Isabel Monk O'Connor, and Kelly Lynn Foster-Warder. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us, all so insightful. And thank you to Zippy Lasky and Kyle Kimlin for making that parody song soar. And thanks to the lovely Tony Axtell for his audio production assistance and mastering. Okay, in lieu of ticket sales, we are seeking your support to help us pay our actors and writers and engineers so we can keep these episodes coming until it's safe to meet again live and in person. I want to send a special thank you to these supporters who have given to us so far, Susan S., James N., Nancy S., Linda G., and Jane McD. If you'd like to join this list of supporters, you can donate any amount through our website, islandofdiscardedwomen.com. All donors get a 20% discount from our sponsor, Flip 'em the Bird. As you know, when you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves, ball caps, and t-shirts at flipemthebird.com. Okay, please stay safe, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue
0: Scott.